You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. We are a nation in shock, united in grief over the discovery of a mass grave of Indigenous children at the site of a former residential school in BC. How could this happen? Why don't we know the history? How do we right the wrong? Tina Cortez with Reaction. Earlier this week, communities across the country observed two minutes and 15 seconds of silence to honour the First Nations children buried at the former residential school in Kamloops. Since 1972, the Woodland Cultural Centre in Brantford has been working on educating the public on Indigenous history. The Executive Director is Janice Montour. Janice, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. Can you share with us what the dialogue has been like with the community members there? Well, I think the community has really come together, are, are grieving at this moment. There's a lot of frustration. People are very upset, hurt. You know, are just trying to figure out what the next steps are going to be. It's a lot of hard. It's really hard to explain and put into words. Understandable. Does the discovery of a mass grave in BC renew the feelings of fear and trauma? I would suspect that they would. It's definitely bringing up a lot of feelings for Indigenous communities across this country um, of grief, for sure. Like we're all sort of taking a second, you know, giving us space to sort of process all of these emotions that we're feeling. But it's definitely something that we're just, you know, struggling with right now. And in terms of your own center, it's located on the grounds of the former Mohawk Institute Residential School. What does that mean then? Does it have greater significance? I don't think it has any greater significance than any other of the residential school sites. But I think for myself and my team that I'll work at Woodland Cultural Center, you know, it's something we deal with every day. We, you know, walk the hallways. Um, we're we're on the grounds of the, you know, the site. Um, but really, we just keep going back to our own mandate of why the cultural center exists now. Uh, we opened in 1972, two years after the residential school closed in June of 1970, and really our mandate is to do the exact opposite of what these schools try to do um, and take away our language and culture. Is there a possibility that there could be a grave on, on your site as well? I think the possibilities are there. We don't have official records. We have heard stories from survivors, testimonials of, you know, them saying that, you know, there'd be students you know, they would see one day and then they wouldn't see them the next day and would wonder what had happened to them. Did they get sick? Did they run away? Like, there's a lot of those unanswered questions. And because the records aren't complete, um, and or nor do we have access to all of them, uh, there is a lot of uncertainty about if there were children who died at this particular school, we don't have all that information. Do you think there should be a a national search for unmarked graves at residential school sites? Absolutely. I think we owe that to those families of those children whose lives were taken. We need to bring closure to our communities and start that healing process again. And I think it's, you know, 
really the task of the federal government to pay for these investigations. It shouldn't be left to the communities to, to pay for this. It should be the federal government. It was their policies that created these residential schools, that created the system of genocide in our, in our country. And I think you touched on this already, but how does the healing begin? I think it's an ongoing thing that we're, you know, sort of continually doing with our communities, specifically our survivors and the intergenerational survivors. I don't think there's a single family that hasn't been touched by residential school. We all know someone in our family who's attended, but it's right now I think we're sort of all in a, in a state of shock when we heard the news. Unfortunately, not necessarily surprising because we have heard those stories that children have said. It's really right now, it's, it's a time, people are having a hard time processing it, but are also grieving. What have you heard from the federal government? Nothing's really formally yet. Um, I think we're waiting for, we're really waiting for them to, you know, sort of put words into action right now. And so until that happens, where do you go from here? I think we're just going to keep, you know, asking the questions and saying, well, what, what are we going to do now? Like this, you know... The TRC report came out in 2015, it's six years later, and a lot of those calls to action haven't been acted on. One of the calls to action was to look at into the unmarked graves and the unrecorded deaths of the, of the students who attended these schools. I think we, you know, instead of, you know, apologies and, you know, lowering the flags, we need to see action by this government and really encourage other Canadians to start, you know, saying to the government, like, we need answers. This isn't just a history that impacts, you know, Indigenous people. This was a shared history um, in this country, and it's something that, you know, needs to be investigated and needs to be brought to the awareness. It's really unfortunate it took this tragedy to bring back to light the importance of telling the story of the residential school history in this country. So you mentioned the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of 2015 and how not much has changed or not much was acted upon since then. I, I hope something from this tragedy, something positive comes from this so that we can begin healing. I hope that a lot of those recommendations get looked at um, because there is still this pain and trauma that continues to resonate in our communities. And it w- it took... You know, these schools ran for 150 years. It's going to take 150 years for us to come out of it. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people are trying to grasp is how, you know, when can you guys start to reconcile? Is, is that even possible? Like, well, think of how long this system was in place. It's going to take that much longer for us to, to get to a place where we can have that sense of, I think, I don't even know, really know how to describe it, but it's gonna. It's it's a process. It's a lot. It's, it was years. A generation of children went through these schools in our communities. If our listeners want more information about the Woodland Cultural Center, or perhaps need some help dealing with the trauma and the pain, where can they go? Well, the Indian Residential School Support System does have a hotline that's open twenty four hours, and it, the phone number is one eight six six nine two five four four one nine, and if you know, listeners are wanting to learn more about the history of residential school and resources um, that they could go to to learn more about this history. I definitely encourage people to visit um, our website, uh, woodlandculturalcenter.ca, 
And if you go to Save the Evidence, there's a lot of resources there on the history of residential schools and, and sort of ways in which you can help. Coming up, reopening Ontario and the currency of gratitude. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. The provincial government unveiled its new plan for reopening Ontario again, set to begin June 14th in steps rather than stages. Businesses will be allowed to bring customers inside slowly, gradually, and with restrictions. So how are they going to do it? And what makes sense, dollars and cents, for small and medium companies that have, for the most part, been shut down for months? Joining us on the feed right now with his insights is Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Welcome, Rocco. Always a pleasure to be with you, Anne. So were you and the OCC consulted by the government with its new three-step plan to reopen safely when they announced it last month? Well, we've been in ongoing conversation since the beginning of the the crisis, and uh, one of the things that we have appreciated is uh, an openness on the part of uh, the government to to hear and to... uh, to adjust as we've gone through, as we've learned more. Much of this plan, as far as I can see, is tied to vaccinations. What's your thought on that? Well, look, at uh, we've been told for a long while that vaccinations are the game changers, and we've seen it happening in uh, in Israel. We've seen it happening in the in the UK and large swaths of the US, and so. I think people very reasonably had two very simple questions. I get it. It's a game changer. Now tell me how and when the game changes. Mm-hmm. And uh, laying out the three-step plan, uh, very similar to what Saskatchewan and Quebec had already done, uh, was, was important and recognizes the importance of, uh, of vaccinations while still giving them wiggle room uh, by saying other key health measures, so ICU, hospitalizations, etc. So let's focus in on what is really important in our discussion today, and that is businesses reopening. You and I have talked about this, I don't know how many times through this pandemic. I'm going to count on one hand at least five times. How, this time around, do businesses, medium and small, Main Street and local, how do they reopen? How do they do it? Well, first off, uh, and I think this is why the three-stage plan initially is as cautious as it is, by far the most cautious of any of, uh, of the plans announced to date across the country, and that is we can't afford to go back again. Uh, businesses are up to their eyeballs in, in debt if they're going to purchase additional uh, goods to stock their, uh, their inventory. Think about a, uh, a restaurant, uh, for instance, and call back employees. They can't afford to waste the money again. Uh, two, all of the supports that were promised, all of the governments at every level saying, we've got your back, 
It's not exactly true because tens of thousands of businesses have already gone bankrupt, have shut their, their doors forever. To make sure we don't add to that list, we want to make sure that all the promise supports are out and in people's bank accounts so that they can, they can operate if we can expand qualifications because there's all kinds of people just literally hanging on by their, their fingernails. Um, that would be hugely helpful. We just recently uh, issued a report on access to capital and, you know, loan guarantees and, uh, and protecting subsidies and using purchasing power from the government to assist in the relaunching of, um, of, uh, of the economy. All of those things are important. We've launched together with the provincial government and, and 100 chambers and boards of trade across uh, the province, including phenomenal uh, chambers in New York region like, like Vaughan and Newmarket and Markham uh, to, to provide free rapid tests. Um, to businesses of fewer than 150 employees to give both the employees and customers that additional level of, uh, of security that everyone is being tested multiple times a week um, to, to make things as, as safe as possible because part of coming back is, is going to be the confidence of employees and customers to want to come back. And also, on the part of the business, the money and the support and the foundation to be able to come back. So here's a tweet that I saw last week. Dan Kelly, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, quote, small biz feels abandoned in Ontario. Well, um, look at, again, Dan is referring to the fact that this, a reopening plan, the initial free stage, is the most cautious, is the slowest to open up capacity. I think the government did it deliberately to give themselves room to under-promise and over-deliver, but quite frankly, the faster we can get there, and we, we know how it is that we're going to get there. Let's make sure we continue to follow the rules. Let's make sure we get as many vaccines into arms as as possible, and just a couple weeks ago, we set a new record, 190,000 in one day. We need to be doing that every day, including weekends, um, to, to bring an end to this as quickly as possible. And then I think you'll see um, that we, we, we can and should be moving even faster as, uh, as the summer progresses. Rocco, can some small and medium-sized businesses afford to reopen? I'm not sure whether they will be uh, forced into uh, purchasing more shields and more PPE and, and increasing their staff training and also security for lineups. Uh, I know that there will be a restricted number of patrons allowed inside businesses once they reopen, at least in step one. Can businesses afford to, to do this? Where can they go for financial support? Well, exactly why uh, we said that the access to capital and why that, that report was, is so crucial and encourage people to... Um, uh, to read it and businesses to read it for the resources that are are referenced in the different programs, but it's on government um, to accelerate uh, those payments as quickly as possible to expand the criteria wherever possible. It's also it's not just government; it's all of us 
you know, we have the choice with our consumer dollars. You know, your spending is someone's salary. Your spending is someone's livelihood. And so the more we can support local and Canadians and Ontarians have really been stepping up through through all of this and wherever possible and where their means permit, um, you know, getting that takeout and delivery, getting, you know, uh, if you're going to buy online, do that extra click and find a local uh, business to, uh, to get it to you um, because every dollar makes a difference. And no business goes into business with the, the plan to live off of government largesse. They, they, they're in business because they're proud of the goods, the services they produce, their employees, and, and they want their cash register to, uh, to ring because consumers want to buy their products. So we all have a role in this. There's a recent survey released. Uh, it's about support for local businesses. And in that survey, customers were asked whether they would be willing to pay more to help local businesses, and a majority of people said yes. Well, I, again, you know, Canadians are amazing, and and they understand that it's not simply, um, you know, small business, our Main Street businesses, they're not just places that, that buy and sell goods or services. They're, they're the organizations that support our local charities. They provide the the street life, the culture, the vibe that we have, the liveliness of, of our towns and, and our cities. And so, you know, you're, 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 you're not just buying, you're not just buying that good or service. You are supporting your community in a very tangible way. And, and, you know, I'm delighted that, that people are stepping up to do that. And I think we need to keep doing that um, to, to have a, uh, a, a sharp and upward trajectory on the recovery. So as the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, Rocco Rossi, are you shocked, surprised at how long this has taken, how difficult this has been, and is it playing out the way you feel it should be? Hindsight is is twenty twenty, and and there are are two things that people in the fact that within a little over a year we have vaccines that are proving to be as effective as they are is nothing short of a scientific miracle. Uh, so on on the one hand, that has happened uh, faster, but we we've seen through the pain, the damage that has been caused, that the tens of thousands, as I said, of businesses in Ontario alone, um, that, you know, mistakes have been made, uh, promise support has not happened in all instances, but crises are things without a playbook. And as we look at other countries uh, in the world, there are few other countries I would rather be uh, in terms of their handling of of uh, the pandemic, both in terms of the loss of lives and livelihoods. We, for all of the pain, and it has been considerable, uh, and it continues to be. And it's not just it's not just money versus health, because the price that people have been paying in terms of mental health, in terms of delayed procedures. 
is creating a, an echo pandemic that we're going to be living with for, for years. So there are many things that, it, with the benefit of hindsight, we would have loved to have redone. But I think given the tools on, on hand, um, I think it has been quite remarkable. And that's been largely uh, the people of this great province and great country and, and businesses just uh, hanging in there for one another. I want to thank you for looking back with us and also helping us look forward, literally and figuratively. Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, thanks for joining us on the feed. Stay positive, test negative, and get vaccinated just as soon as you can. That's the ticket out of this. Well said, Rocco. Thank you. The fitness industry has been hit hard by multiple lockdowns. Jim Lang next with The Sweat Equity. Well, like a lot of people, I'm counting down the days until I can go back to the gym again. We miss gyms at fitness centers and CrossFit facilities and anything where we can get together and work out to talk more about it and how we can get back to being healthy again. Thrilled to be joined by Nick Corneal, the CEO of Trainer Plus, a fantastic endeavor. You can find them on Twitter at T Plus app or their website, TrainerPL.com. Dot US. Nick, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Jim, how are you? Well, excellent. Um, let's talk about what's happened to ourselves physically and mentally in the pandemic, especially in Ontario, especially with gyms and fitness centers and CrossFit facilities and everything else where we get to get physical workout shut down for so long. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been a, it's been a tough year, or 15 months, I guess, uh, all around for everybody, um, you know, for everybody in general with everything going on and, and the fitness industry has obviously had a, had a really tough, uh, had a really tough time been shut down for, uh, you know, 13 of those 15 months in Toronto and, and 11 of those 15 months, pretty much in most other areas in the, in the province. So it's been, uh, it's been tough. It's been, a, it's been very tough on the industry for sure. Now, Nick, I, I've been working out at home the best I can, but it is different. What is the difference between a home workout and utilizing the facilities at a proper fitness center in the region, in the GTA, in the equipment that they have? Yeah, well, I mean, fitness is something you can do anywhere. Um, you know, you don't you don't even need equipment necessarily for it. You can get a decent workout at home, but for a lot of people... Um, depending on the goal, depending on their motivations, um, being able to go into the gym where there is a bigger range of equipment, um, you know, there's obviously different types of machines um, and, and, you know, in a lot of cases, better machines than you would have at home. Um, for a lot of people, that, that's kind of necessary. I know for myself, like I've got weights at home. I'm a former personal trainer myself. Um, but you know, it does get, it does get monotonous after a while. And, and I miss, I miss being able to go in and throw some weight on the barbell and do some deadlifts and do some squats and, you know, do some things like that. So, um, you know, there is a, there is a difference in fitness, unlike other industries, um, you know, some of the other industries, I mean, everybody has had, has had, obviously has been affected by the pandemic. Um, but fitness is one of those industries where we don't really have like a curbside pickup, right. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, or a takeout. It, it is a real brick and mortar industry. It is a place where people like to go both for the equipment, but also for the social aspect of it. Right. The, it's, it's a couple of things with fitness. It's part of a routine. It's part of staying motivated and staying accountable. So being able to go into a place that's part of, you know, part of your schedule, you see people there, you know, in a lot of cases, people are, 
getting coached by in boutique fitness and in group group exercise classes, places like you mentioned, CrossFit or, or Orange Theory or places like that. They're getting coached and they're used to that being guided that way and being motivated that way, or they're working with a personal trainer um, and getting that and getting those things. So without the gyms being open, you know, you're lacking all of that aspect of fitness. And it's really left up to the individual to be both motivated to pick those weights up or do that workout at home, find something to follow. Um, and, you know, knowing kind of what you're doing on your own, you already have to have a lot of those habits built in to be able to do it on your own at home, as opposed to being able to go into a gym and, you know, access the full array of things there and the social aspect of it as well. I'm glad you brought that up, Nick, because I don't know how many times I've been in a gym and I've been maybe dragging a bit. I see someone who's elderly and they're getting after it or someone who's overweight and really (laughs) busting their butt to lose weight. I'm like, I have no excuse. I got to step it up. And it does like mentally get you going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- there's that aspect of it, just whether it's, you know, your, your self-competitiveness or seeing that or seeing that motivation of somebody doing it or looking over and seeing a trainer doing an exercise that you've never seen before yeah. and thinking, oh, shoot, that's something I want to do. Um, yeah, and, and not to mention the community aspect of it, right? And that's where, for a lot of people, gyms are, are a third space to them. And, um, and they're missing out on that community and missing out on, on that aspect of it as well. Speaking with Nick Corneal, the CEO of Trainer Plus and part of the Fitness Industry Council of Canada and a thing called GetMovingAgain.ca, an online petition right now with well over 13,000 signatures. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of passion for this movement, Nick. Are you getting some feedback from the different levels of politicians in the province that there will be some movement this way? Well, it, you know, that's been really difficult, to be, to be quite honest. Um, we've been working for, you know, over a year um, from the uh, of the Fitness Industry Council of Canada, the our Ontario Coalition, um, and we've been we've been doing everything we can to engage with the government, um, and and really we're not asking for we're not asking for a lot. We're not asking for we never ask for gyms to be open tomorrow, given you know the state home orders and different things. But all we asked for was for us to be able to have a seat at the table. Our, our coalition represents a broad swath of the industry, from the big chains all the way down to independent gym owners. And we just wanted to be able to sit at the table, present the data that we have about, one, how, what gyms can do and have done to be as safe as possible and to minimize the risk of transmission in their gyms, um, but also show the data on, you know, that the, the proof is in the pudding. What, what we saw when we had been open, the data is really much on our side, and we just wanted to be able to, you know, be part of the solution with government, talk to them, like we're the experts on how gyms can operate. It's obvious that not, you know, not everyone or not very many people at the government level, def- you know, necessarily know how gyms can operate. So we just want to be able to give our feedback and say, this is what we know we can do. This is what we know we can do to be as safe as possible. This is how we can balance, you know, the safety and health of our staff and our members with the viability. Um, and that was part of it was when, you know, when that color-coded system came out, the rules that they put in place for gyms, they were just, they didn't make any sense. We were the only jurisdiction in the world that we could find that had sort of an arbitrary cap on capacity, no matter what the size of the gym is. Um, and now we're, now that we have the framework out, um, we're looking at it and you look at our framework in Ontario versus every other province. Again, fitness is way back in the list and way, way delayed compared to BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Quebec, even that we're seeing. Um, and so again, like our ask on, on this petition and get moving, uh, get moving 
really is just for the government to actually engage with us, you know, use real-world data in the decision-making that they're doing, and, and make rules that make sense for our industry and are fair relative to other industries. Again, that website is getmovingagain.ca. Sign the petition, get it going, get fitness clubs open again. Now, here's my question, but I'm confused, Nick, and maybe you can help clear it up. I get that golf courses and tennis courts and basketball courts are opened up. It's outside. Why can't a fitness facility or CrossFit, whatever it is, Orange Fitness, conduct their classes outside, separately spaced, and everyone's following protocol and get that workout in in a group effort? Um, well, that's a that's a really good question. We're we're now the only province um, <laughs> here that does not have outdoor fitness open. Um, the science shows that the risk of transmitting outside is, is, ex- is extremely low, if not, you know, almost, almost none. Um, and you can conduct a fitness class with a limit of 10 people, let's say, like they're, like they're proposing doing in stage one, with people properly distanced and have very, you know, have no risk pretty much of, of anything happening there. Um, but even if you look at what we can do inside, and that's, and that's another, you know, another aspect of this is, when gyms were open, gyms can gyms have booking systems, um, so we're able to limit limit capacity and spacing. Everyone has re-engineered their space to keep everybody three meters apart. Equipment blocking off spaces, doing all that stuff. People can wear masks when they're in the gym, so we can keep people apart. We can keep people with masks on, um, you know, and and we can and we can limit the flow in the gym. And we've got built-in contact tracing and. The proof is in that we've had, in our coalition, our members, when gyms have been able to be open, we've had over 15 million check-ins in Ontario with zero times where public health has recognized the gym as a source of community spread. So we know that when it's done right, and our members were very strict about how they ran their facilities when they were able to be open, went beyond what the government rules were, we know when it's done right, it can be done safely inside, you know, as well as for sure outside, and there's no reason why, you know, fitness could not be done outside right now. Um, and what we're looking at is, is why, you know, can, can fitness not be moved up from stage three in this current framework up into stage one or stage two where, you know, we can open in the same way that non-essential retail could with masks, with, uh, with a percentage capacity restriction, and with all the rules that gyms already have in place um, for hygiene and everything else to, to make things as safe as possible. Well, I mean, too, I mean, just to wrap up, Nick, I mean, with the weather we're having now, uh, it's, you know, the June, July, August into September weather and people need, and they're saying get fresh air, get outside, doing an outside class to me yeah. makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, there's, you're, you're, you're totally right. You're preaching to the converted here, but, <laughs> you know, do what you can to support your local gyms, um, you know, just like you're, you've supported your local restaurants yeah. your local retail. Uh, these guys are, you know, these guys are, are still doing everything they can to, to stick around and get through this and be able to be there for you. So, you know, support your local facilities. They, everybody has things they're still doing, whether it's online classes or online training or content, whatever it is. Um, so just really encourage people to try and support their local fitness facilities, you know, and just, and just for your own health, um, be there. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, soon enough, people will be able to get back uh, outside um, with, uh, with, with fitness and, and hopefully soon enough inside as well. Indeed. Getmovingagain.ca. Sign the petition and get it going. Nick Cornell is the CEO of Trainer Plus. Get more details at the website, trainerpl.us, or on Twitter at T Plus app. Uh, Nick, f- so much greatly appreciated your efforts and what you're doing, and I'm definitely on team get back in the gym. So hopefully this will do something that comes together quickly and everyone can get back to normal. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me, Jim. Really appreciate it. You too. Take care. 
Martina Cortez now with the currency of gratitude to find business success. Michelle Bailey is the founder of My Big Idea and the author of The Currency of Gratitude. Before we get to all that, Michelle, tell us about your start. Where and how did this begin for you? The start actually started 26 years ago, Tina, um, when I founded uh, Blazing, which is an advertising agency, uh, advertising and marketing, still doing extremely well today. Um, so it started when I was 30 years old, so 26 years ago. I had the fortune to set out on my own. I had a vision and a mission and a purpose and a passion, and I turned that into a company called Blazing, uh, which is still thriving and surviving uh, even during today's uh, tumultuous times. And what exactly does Blazing provide for its clients? We are a digital and traditional marketing ad agency, so we do everything from branding to packaging to website design to social media management, traditional um, uh, advertising as well. So we do commercials. Everything you would think of an ad agency does, we do, and we have it very gifted team, full-time team at Blazing, who has stayed with me through trials and tribulations for the last many, many years. Well, talk about trials and tribulations. I'm sure you haven't seen anything like, you know, what's been happening the last 16 months or so through this pandemic. What have you been able to provide your clients and other companies out there? Uh, Especially through these last 16 months, we've seen extremes. We've seen clients whose revenue has dropped off a cliff, down 80%, 70%, and we've seen other clients whose revenues have really climbed because they have uh, food, they're in the food or healthcare industry. So we've seen the full gamut with our clients. So what we've done to try to help our clients through this is a lot of them, we've helped them accelerate their digital technologies and the digital requirements in the marketing and advertising space, as well as strategizing with them on what they can do and what the world is going to look like or what it may need when they come out based again on their product or service offerings. Okay, so hand in hand with this must be my big idea. What's that all about? My big idea I actually created about five years ago when I saw a disconnect between personal and professional lives. Uh, I I saw that there was a disconnect. So it's not about work-life balance, Tina, because there is no such thing as work-life balance. The most we can hope for and achieve is a work-life blend or integration. So what my big idea does is help you set goals and 10 areas of your life so you can get clarity and focus around what you need to do in what area and the steps that will get you there. For instance, with my big idea workshop and program, we start with um, reflection. We ask 10 questions about what worked and what didn't work in the last year of your life, in this case, 16 months. And we ask Uh, 10 questions around personal goals, and we help you set one to three personal goals. And we have professional goals. We have health and wellness goals. We have finance and wealth. We have relationship goals and how to build and create your support network. We have refueling goals, 
what do you need to do to be the best version of yourself, not only for you, but for everyone around you. And then we end every session with gratitude goals. We actually take people through an exercise to help them get very clear on who are the people that have helped them along the journey to get them to where they are today. And we do a a gratitude goal, and then uh, before anyone leaves the workshop, we have them fill out a gratitude card that they in turn will answer seven questions and give that card to someone who has impacted their life, and you just watch magic happen there. Can everyone achieve that work-life blend? I believe everyone can achieve work-life blend, understanding that at times work takes precedence or life takes precedent. But if you can manage the yin and the yang of work-life blend, then you have more clarity, you're calmer, um, you have the ability to see the future instead of just trying to live uh, in the now today. So I I do believe we can all achieve work-life blend and integration, and that's what my big idea is all about. It's helping people crystallize in their mind by writing out their goals, and then we have a planner, a My Big Idea planner, that allows people to take the goals they've set for the year and implement them on a daily, weekly basis so they can measure themselves quarterly and know when they're off track or on track and plan accordingly. So what was the inspiration behind your book, The Currency of Gratitude? You know, that, that actually came out of the My Big Idea workshop. Um, the people at Forbes uh, in New York heard about this, gra- how I take gratitude and make it really simple for people to execute. So they approached me and asked me if I would write a book to show people how easy and impactful gratitude is. So I took on the challenge. Um, it's a, a tight read. It's like a two-and-a-half-hour read. I wanted something that you could be running through the airport, pick up at the airport bookstore, and read from, let's say, Boston to Chicago. So in it, I've put examples of gratitude in your personal brand, gratitude in winning business, gratitude in creating relationships, forging deeper relationships. It's a seven-chapter book that I created, and at the end of each chapter, I have reflection questions that you can ask yourself and write right in the book. I love to, you know, highlight in my own books, business books, and then take key takeaways so that gratitude can be an easy, accessible um, uh, practice that you can start building in your own life. It has certainly, Tina, changed my life, both personally and professionally. I make it a habit to send uh, a minimum of two and up to ten gratitude cards a week to different people that need to be reminded of the impact they've had in my life. And it comes back to me in spades. And I didn't do that to get things back. I did it to give gratitude away. But magic happens when you give gratitude away. It's like money. It comes back to you in a way that you had no idea on how well you had invested it. So what is the reaction of those in the business community about the currency of gratitude? Well, um, Tina, I'm very uh, proud to tell you that the day Forbes launched the currency of gratitude in Times Square on the big billboard um, on April 13th, uh, we sold out of books on Amazon by 2 p.m. that afternoon. Six hours. Wow. 
Yeah, it was just, we were astounded. My friends and, and different people were reaching out to me. I can't get the book. It's back ordered. It's out of stock. Um, since then, uh, Amazon has uh, replenished stock and continues to do so. So I think people are getting it. People are getting that. Um, for me, when I talk about the currency gratitude, it's like uh, money. Uh, I find that gratitude is also a currency, just like money. If you leave it in your mattress and you don't do anything with it, you get nothing back. I've been doing it for several years, and I can't believe the gift. It's a gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) It seems that the pandemic has forced many of us to reexamine our lives, what we need, what we want, to be grateful. But do you think once we move beyond the pandemic and back into some sort of normal life, that this will no longer be a priority and it'll get pushed aside? My mission is to make sure this is always a priority because every day, every week, every month, there are people helping you, whether it's emotionally, physically, socially, mentally, mentoring you or not, people are helping you. Can you not take five minutes out of your day to answer these questions? One word that describes you. You came into my life. You bring me joy by. You inspire me because I hope to add to our journey together by, and I want to thank you for answering those questions, Tina, changes relationships for the better. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. If our listeners want more information about My Big Idea or want a copy of your book, The Currency of Gratitude, where can they find you? Uh, You can find The Currency of Gratitude on Amazon. And uh, if you want information about My Big Idea, www.mbimybigidea.com. All the information is there. When we come back, solutions when it comes to global food insecurity. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Danya is a responsible, mission-based agritech startup located here in Canada. It delivers a proven, commercial-grade, year-round, sustainable farming solution to try and maximize on crop production in any climate. It actually began as the Danya Project, an effort to find a technology that would help solve the problem of global food insecurity. Yes, global food insecurity. Many of us, myself included, have been completely in the dark about this shocking and very troubling problem. Sumi Shan is here to help us understand and to make a difference. She is the co-founder and chief strategy officer of Dunya Habitats. Welcome, Sumi Shan. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Sumi, what exactly is food insecurity? So when a person is food insecure, it's when they lack regular access to enough food and, and nutritious pro, uh, food for sort of normal growth and development. What we understand here in, in Canada is that one in eight households are food insecure and 
over 800 million are global, um, globally insecure when it comes to food. And at Dunya, we're looking to be able to mitigate those challenges and, and really increase food security for all. You have a personal experience with food insecurity, and it's really through a relative. Can you tell us what that is? Tell me what your father experienced uh, in Sri Lanka. Yes, so as an immigrant uh, and a refugee family from a smallholder farming family from Sri Lanka, you know, we're a very social impact driven uh, family, but the the idea that too many people are facing hunger was extremely um, difficult for my, my our father to, to deal with. And, and upon retiring, uh, what he did was um, went on to, went to Sri Lanka to, to help really teach sustainable farming um, to the youth there. Uh, what he noticed there is that, you know, um, young folks were selling produce uh, very for a very short time and weren't able to grow because we were in a drought-prone area in, in northern Sri Lanka in the Jaffna Peninsula. And he he really wanted to be able to support the, the growth and the livelihood option for, for them. Um, I think a lot of that is tied into the fact that, you know, of his own struggles um, as, a, as an, a refugee to Canada and also, you know, having to kind of um, navigate through sort of what it is, our, our life here in Canada in, you know, certain times when you didn't have the, uh, the ability to, to per, um, purchase fresh, nutritious produce, right? So he didn't want others to face that. And uh, my brother and I really wanted to be able to kind of um, tap into that and see if we can, we can help fix, fix the problem. And you looked for and found technology that would help to solve the problem. Can you explain that? Yes. So, at Dunya, we use hydroponic uh, growing, which is using water to grow. It's, it's a proven method, um, and, you know, it's been used uh, for thousands of years. Um, my co-founder, my brother, who's the technology person on our team, what he did was he um, optimized a smaller greenhouse option, something that is modular uh, that can be collapsible it's easy to use a turnkey solution so that we can we can be able to ship it up north to to Nunavut or to you know communities in sub-saharan africa or in india uh which with little or no um uh, need for expertise from us we wanted to make it easy to use um easy to assemble easy to grow and and that's basically what Dunya um, is, is, is striving for. And your project right now is Dunya Habitats. Is that what this is, what we're talking about? Is the habitat part of it like a tiny farm in a way? Correct. It's, it's, a, it's a miniature farm. Um, so what we wanted to be able to do is provide folks with the opportunity to, to really grow um, as their needs grow. So the modular nature, uh, nature of our tiny farm system allows you to customize your, your production to your market needs, right? So if you want to, if you want to put in a big investment at the, at the, out of the gate, um, our design certainly allows for it, but our minimum, uh, footprint is about 100 square foot. Mm. So you could put, technically put it in your backyard, um, or on your farm, whether it's in rural or an urban area. And as your production level needs grow, um, it will grow with you. Um, it's a beehive model, so uh, really, you know, using biomimicry to um, we've 
wanted to be in tune with nature. So using biomimicry to be able to kind of build out um, sort of your footprint, but keep it minimal as as we did not want to tax our, our, our lands are already overtaxed by intensive farming. And can these modular beehive configurations, can they withstand any kind of weather? Because we're talking about the world over and the weather almost everywhere can be quite inclement depending on the season. Yes, definitely. They are climate control systems. We built it for the Canadian weather. So our, our alpha unit was actually tested out in minus, almost minus 40 degrees. Um, but it's meant to be able to uh, allow you to grow whether you're in a minus 40, uh, 40 situation or in a plus 50, 50 degree situation in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, a longer term vision was for us was to be able to help subsistence farm, farmers globally. Uh, especially those that are, you know, becoming climate refugees uh, because of climate change. And we wanted to be able to mitigate and really allow them the opportunity to still still produce um, uh, vegetables uh, no matter where they are. It sounds to me like it's hydroponic growing. Is that correct? Correct, yes. So our, our systems right now use um, hydroponic growing. Um, we're a vertical system at the moment, and, and hopefully down the road uh, as we grow, we'll be able to um, include uh, more of the horizontal as well as aquaponics. You're also endeavoring to create organic, non-GMO produce. And as you mentioned, the modular, the beehive configuration is about 100 square feet. So is it plausible? Is it possible? And why go for the organic and GMO, uh, non-GMO produce? We we um, felt it was very important to to certainly not use pesticides and non-GMO seeds um, because we wanted to provide healthy, uh, nutritious produce, ensuring that, you know, we have a high nutritious intake. If you're looking at, like, food deserts even here in Canada or in elsewhere, you know, a lot of the times people are um, buying processed food versus nutritious because they don't have access to affordable produce. So what we wanted to be able to do is provide them that opportunity to um, buy produce that was high, highly nutritious because we're using um, or a hydroponic farming the nutrients go directly to the produce. Um, so you can you can certainly taste it, you know, 40% more aroma, um, aromatic oils in our in our, our regulas. Um, uh, there's a freshness to it. There's a higher nutritional values when we're using certain LED light. You can change the spectrum in those uh, to, to ensure that you have um, a higher nutritional values in them. And that was pretty important for us. Yeah, and quite frankly, people, humankind, they deserve the best. They really do, no matter where they are, no matter exactly. what their situation. So, Sumi... 10 by 10, that footprint, is that enough to sustain a family for a length of time or is much of it grown for sale in order to put money into the pockets of those who need it? So uh, a 10 by 10 is, is our um, sort of our minimum footprint, but of course you can add multiple units to it to increase your footprint. With one of our units, you could, um, if you're only growing for, you know, your family, you could technically use that for about 15, uh, 15 families to feed 15 families. Um, through uh, throughout a year. Um, ideally, what we wanted to be able to do is provide an option where you're not only growing for your own needs, 
but um, the extra produce that you're growing, you can sell that back into the market and, and generate income. So who here in Canada should be and can be involved? Um, certainly, our, our product is, uh, you know, multiple users can uh, can use it. I mean, we've had plenty of interest from NGOs to, to restaurants to schools. Um, and even farmers, uh, to, uh, to a smaller degree, our, our focus right now is working with NGOs that are working on food security projects. So whether it's municipalities or food banks, um, that are looking to really increase their production level as they, as they want to support the needs of the vulnerable communities here. So how would Dunya Habitats, uh, help local food systems here in Canada, here in Ontario, here in York Region, support food needs for local, say, food banks, for instance? Um, So we believe that by um, strengthening local food system, we can certainly help alleviate food insecurity. Um, And that that starts with helping to build sustainable food hubs in our cities to help our vulnerable communities access to to fresh, nutritious nutritious food, right? Goods nowadays, they travel a long distance, uh, you know, south of the border. Um, Having them... uh, be located closer to home, a shorter distance rather than traveling 4,000 kilometers to reach our tables, I think is certainly important um, aspect to ensure that we are providing the, the freshest, nutritious produce um, to folks. Uh, you know, a lot of folks are definitely asking for that. Um, we think with Dunya, we can certainly accelerate the innovation in the agricultural sector to to focus on um, increasing our homegrown production versus dependent on sort of imports. And I think by doing that, uh, having larger availability of produce that are locally grown um, that are less costly will certainly increase um, the ability for vulnerable communities to access uh, affordable produce. And to tell it like it is, make sure that no one goes hungry. I've got to thank you so much for joining us on the feed, Sumi Shan, co-founder and chief strategy officer, Dunya Habitats. Well done. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. It was a pleasure talking to you. I count, you count, we all count. Heather Seaman with that story. York Region recently joined forces with the United Way of Greater Toronto to work with community agencies to conduct what's known as a point-in-time count of people experiencing homelessness in York Region. Monica Bryce, Acting General Manager of Social Services for the Regional Municipality of York, joins us to share some details of the initiative. Monica, tell us about the iCount initiative, what it's all about, and why you're collecting the data. The count is intended to capture not only the number of people experiencing homelessness, but also some basic demographics about the people experiencing homelessness at a single point in time. And by gathering this information, we can better understand what caused people to become homeless, the scope of homelessness in York Region, so how many people are experiencing homelessness at a point in time. And the feedback and the details that we get by talking to folks helps inform our development enhancement of program and services and helps us target our funding to areas and supports where we can really make a difference. So how is the data actually being collected? Okay, so um, 
The point in time count will survey people experiencing homelessness in New York region, including all of the people staying at our emergency and transitional housing facilities, and as well as people who may be living outdoors. So in light of the pandemic, I count 2021 is being conducted a little bit differently than when we did the count in 2018 because we have incorporated some public health guidelines to ensure the health and safety of everyone who's involved. The surveys will be conducted by York Region outreach staff and our partner service providers such as Salvation Army, 360 Kids and Blue Door who provide emergency housing supports to people experiencing homelessness. And explain what hidden homelessness is for listeners who may not be aware it even exists in York Region. Homelessness is a small reality for a small portion of York Region residents. And although York Region doesn't have a lot of what people might be used to seeing in bigger urban centers, you know, that visible homelessness on the streets, we do have quite a number of individuals who are what's known as hidden homeless. And those are folks who are moving from one friend's couch to another, or who may be staying at an emergency shelter for a little bit of time, living outdoors for a little bit of time, and then finding their way to various temporary locations. And those are the folks who are a little bit more difficult to capture, but it's so important to understand their experience because really our goal through iCount is to try and find ways to better prevent homelessness. When was the last time York Region did a homeless count, and what were the findings? So in our first homeless count uh, that the region was involved in was in 2018. And what we found as a result of, of that point in time count was we found 389 individuals who were living homeless, or who were experiencing homelessness, sorry. Uh, 44 of those folks were living unsheltered and 220 folks were staying in an emergency housing facility or a violence against women shelter. And it's important to note that we do look at all of the facilities that are supporting folks who are experiencing homelessness. And 124 people were staying in temporary accommodations. And those are those folks who might be, um, as I say, couch surfing or, or, or moving from place to place. And one of the things that you um, asked about is what are some of the causes of homelessness or, or, you know, what is it that we should think of when we're thinking about um, homelessness in York Region? And really what we found through iCount and through, our, and through our work with community partners is that there isn't any one factor that can result in someone becoming homeless. Homelessness can happen to anyone as a result of job loss or reduced hours, family conflict, uh, an illness or a medical condition, hospitalization or treatment program that, again, may interrupt uh, their work or their ability to look after themselves. Um, and, and for some folks who are experiencing homelessness, uh, there is some mental health, domestic abuse in their past or substance abuse that, again, are complicating their abilities to stay uh, stably housed. Is the count done annually? That's a great question. So, um, there is a requirement under the federal government's homelessness uh, funding to conduct a point-in-time count, and the province of Ontario has tried to align with that federal requirement so that we're doing one count at the same time. And so that's part of the reason why we're working with the United Way of Greater Toronto is so that we can really pull all of our resources together. The provincial government um, had a count go forward, a required account in 2018, 
And so that was the last time one was done in York Region. Any final words about the initiative? I think it's always important to note that um, really the intention of the programs and services that are helping and working with people uh, who are experiencing homelessness are really intended to help people find the ability and, and stability in their lives so that they can live independently. Uh, and can and can find and retain housing. It really is our intention to create a, a system that has a full range of supports because not, it isn't a one-size-fits-all. Everybody's needs and experiences are different. But the more that we can understand about what services and supports are needed, the more we can work together as a community, we really hope that we can work towards that goal of helping people to either avoid homelessness in the first place or... Um, get the supports and services that they need in order to be able to find and keep housing. And that can be a challenge uh, in our region or in the GTA where housing prices continue to climb and the lack of affordable housing can make that challenging. But working together, uh, we really do hope that we can help as many people as possible find that stable home. Thank you so much, Monica. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. For more information or to read the 2018 iCount findings, go to york.ca slash iCount. The 2021 results will be released next year. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.